The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. I'm looking forward to uh, getting into the Word here and want to uh, make sure that we uh, cover some ground. We got a little bit of a late start there uh, this morning, and I apologize for that. But uh, we'll we'll get what we need to get done uh, done in a timely way here. If you're taking notes, I want to offer you a few things. You can jot them down. These are things to look forward to. They're not really meant to be teasers, but sometimes I think they end up that way. Because I'll read something and I'll think, you know, I want that in my life, and so you'll kind of stay engaged and look for it. Uh, so here's a few things that we're going to look for and find uh, this morning as we get into the word. One, what's needed for peace. Everybody wants peace in their life. There's no doubt about that. People are looking for peace, and a lot of times they're looking for it in the wrong places. I mean, I work with a lot of individuals that have some struggles and trials in their life, and the reality is I think they gave up on looking for a good time a long time ago. They're just looking for peace. They're looking for some measure of stability, some something that can bring a, a, a sense of uh, uh, strength or, or some kind of a uh, stability into their life, and, and that's one of the reasons why some of the choices and decisions are made. They're not always in the right direction. There's going to be something that's necessary for peace to be a part of your life. I mean, if I were to ask in the room here, hey, who all here would like peace in their life? Every hand would go up. Nobody would be like, no, nah, I'm good. I kind of like a little bit of hell every now and then, right? I mean, we want a peaceful life. But there's something that's important to have. I mean, when you see the scripture and you see what God lays out for us, you'll see a series of instructions and directions so that we can follow those instructions and move in those directions to actually have the things that we need be a part of our life. I found myself praying for things before and, and asking for them, and I found that I've, I'm pursuing the wrong thing because God gives instruction. Kind of like this. You know, let's just say you wanted an apple, and so... You've you got to have uh, an apple tree. Well, that apple tree is connected to the roots and, and getting nourishment from the soil. So there's a lot of moving parts to get that end result. And oftentimes we're so hungry for the fruit that we never plant the root. And, and that's really one of the things that I want to find here as it concerns peace. What is the root of peace so that we can see to it that it's nourished in our lives? Another thing that we're going to find is what Jesus wants you to have. I flip-flopped these, so that's going to be the last thing we're going to find. What Jesus wants you to have, and then another thing is going to be how to know, uh, excuse me, how to know what gives you joy. There are things in your life that will give you joy. There's something that you can identify how to know what gives you joy. Like I can tell you this morning, I got a lot of joy out of playing with my sons. I really enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun. And, and so there's, there's some things that you can identify. There's a lot of things in my life that I want to give me joy. But when I run this test through it, I have to ask myself, is that something that I really rejoice in? And we're going to see that here in a moment. And uh, honestly, when I wrote that down, I wrote it down with some real conviction. And I think it's going to be helpful for all of us. So we're going to get right into things. What's needed for peace? Remember, we're looking for that root, that root so that we can cherish that root and nourish that root and then produce that wonderful result that is peace. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I want to look at verses 4 through 7. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Now, you're going to find some passages of Scripture that are, are very useful. And so oftentimes they come out in a number of different messages, but it's the same passage of Scripture that you'll lean on because it's so rich in content. 
Philippians chapter 4 is one that if you read it, you could read it a, a thousand times and every time get a fresh revelation or understanding or a new conviction so rich with uh, insight in the kingdom of God and direction. Here, we're going to look at these verses here. We're going to apply them today for the purpose of finding what's needed for peace. Remember, we're looking for that root that produces that result that we want, that peaceful result that we want. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. It reads like this. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men that the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful, right? I mean, I even got tired when I was reading it. Uh, but it's a lot of things to, to unpack. Let me just start at the end. Having your heart protected by the peace of God, having your heart guarded and your mind guarded by the peace that God promises that would surpass all understanding. And that's a weird way to say it, but basically what it means, when everyone else is panicking and freaking out, you keep it together. That's peace that surpasses understanding. When people are looking at you and they're saying, how are you so calm right now? Why is it that you aren't afraid right now? How come you're not freaking out right now? That's the peace that surpasses all understanding. Everyone else's understanding is going to be that the sky is falling, the world is ending, this is all coming to a crashing, a destructive end, and then here you are, and you're cool. That is a peace that surpasses all understanding. Now, this is a promise. I mean, it's a, it's a promise that God will provide this, that God will provide this peace that surpasses all understanding because he's going to guard my heart and my mind with Jesus. Let me tell you something. You take a passage of scripture like that and you carry it into your prayer life and you just take that to God and say, I want that. I have a heart and sometimes it panics. I have a mind and sometimes it wonders. And I would like for both my heart and my mind to be protected by Jesus because I think he's a pretty solid guard for both of those things. I don't want my heart to be weak and to, to go back and forth and back and forth with fear and doubt and anxiety and faith and fear and doubt, anxiety and faith. I want to stand firm on faith. I want to trust in you. I want to put all that I have on Jesus, and I want him to protect and guard my heart. I want my mind to be the same. I don't want to go back and forth and back and forth. I don't want to have good days, bad days, good days, bad days. I want steady, consistent, wonderful, joy-filled, peaceful days. Jesus, will you guard my mind? I mean, that's what I like about scripture like this, is it's meant to not just be good reading, but rather it's meant to be instruction. I can see that it's a promise of God. Now I can go and ask for it. Father, I want that. And then you don't just ask for it like some kind of demanding child, gimme, 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 but you take it to him and say, your word promises this. Will you show me how to have that? I want your direction. Think about that, that it takes your heart and humbles your heart, and you begin to ask him to lead you and to guide you into this wonderful result that we all want. I want my heart protected. I want my mind protected. I want to be at peace. When everyone else is freaking out, I want to keep it together. God, will you show me how to have that? And then you continue to move backwards here, and you begin to see he is showing. He's giving instruction. And I'm, I know that it says to be anxious for nothing and in everything, be, you know, be filled with, with prayer and thanksgiving. And those are wonderful things. 
But I've prayed for things before and, and still worried and still had doubt. And I've been grateful for what I have and I've still wondered if it's going to last. And I've had all of those things. And I continue to move further back in this passage of scripture. And then I come to a point that I believe is the root of all of this peace that surpasses all understanding. You keep going back to verse 4 where it says, Rejoice in Jesus always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, what's funny is I've always just kind of read right past that. Like it's some kind of a, an intro, like a greeting card, you know, that you open up the front and it says happy birthday. And then it's on the inside that you actually have, you know, the intimate message from whoever gave it to you. But the reality is this isn't just some opener for the meat of the message here. This is the meat of the message. It's starting with step one, the root for all peace that surpasses understanding is going to be rejoicing in Jesus. Rejoice in Jesus. So I have to ask myself what it means to rejoice. I mean, I, I don't want to just, you know, have the vocabulary stuck in my head with no meaning or I don't want to risk it and just assume that I know what it means. So I go to the dictionary and I look up what it means to rejoice. And it says to feel or show joy or happiness. That's kind of interesting, but it doesn't really help me if I'm fighting some kind of depression or anxiety. I don't just need to be told to be happy. That doesn't help me. If I went to you and I was in need and I was in a dark place and your advice to me was get happy, I'd probably go somewhere else for advice, right? So you keep digging deeper into this definition. You just keep reading and you keep looking and you go to the, the origins of the word. And I like doing that. I like the dictionary and then I like the origins of the word. The, the fancy word for it is etymology. It's like the, the, where the word came from. And, and all of this language that we speak today and we're so comfortable with and so casual with has origins where these words have been assembled with, with meanings from other words and it's how our vocabulary is built, how our language is established. And when you look up the etymology for rejoice, it means it, it's built off of these words, to own, to possess, or to enjoy the possession of, or to have the fruit of. It's that last one that rings my bell, to have the fruit of. Think about that. Instead of just saying, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, what if it said this, have the results of Jesus in your life? And again I would say, have the results of Jesus in your life. Have the fruit of Jesus in your life. And again I say, have the fruit of Jesus in your life. The results of Jesus Christ being in my life is really what's going to set me apart from the rest of the world. So no wonder when they're freaking out and they're panicking and they're losing it, I don't have to. And it bears witness with the rest of the scripture that, yeah, I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. I'm different than all of them. And what makes me different than them? The fruit of Jesus in my life. The results of Jesus being in my life, which by definition or by the etymology is rejoicing in Jesus. Enjoying and making the most of who he is in my life. He's not a side note. He's a foundation. He's not medicinal. He's healing. We don't just turn to him to, get, uh, or, or to cope and to feel better. Rather, we lean on him and depend upon him for life itself. We rejoice in him. And I think the fact that it says always means there's never downtime. This isn't something that you do when your feelings are hurt or when it hits the fan, so to speak. And I hope that's appropriate to say. I'm sorry for that. 
when things go wrong or go sideways. This isn't something that we then introduce, but rather this is a lifestyle. That's why the word always is in there. Think about that. It doesn't say rejoice in the Lord when times are bad. And again, I say rejoice. But always. It's not something that we just apply as needed, but rather this is who we are. And then the fact that it's repeated just reiterates the priority. And again, I say, without this, all of this other instruction is going to leave us lacking. If I can't depend upon and lean upon the results of Jesus being in my life, if I can't rejoice in him and make that my lifestyle, it doesn't matter how much I pray. It doesn't matter how much there is supplication. It doesn't even matter how much I want to give thanks. All of those things will be empty traditional efforts to achieve something medicinally or temporarily in my life. God's not interested in being my band-aid. He's my cure. Always. And then you take that into your prayer life. God, I want that. I don't want to have an on-again, off-again relationship with you or your word or your spirit, but I want you and I to be in this thing all the way together. And he wants the same. In fact, in the word, he calls us to this. It's the, it's the word abide. He says, abide in me, and I will abide in you. It means to live together. It doesn't mean to visit each other. And oftentimes, we take Christianity and we make it about visitation. Yeah, you know, things are rough, so I'm going to get real religious for a while. The reality is our relationship with God is meant to be a covenant relationship that is constant and it's always on and always active. Never temporary, never visitation, always habitation. We live together. We're one. And this is really something that I think the, the entire scripture is about. I think that's something that we all desperately need. It, we, we've got this urgent need for peace in our lives. There's a, a need to have this peace that surpasses all understanding. It's the reason why the gospel is called the gospel, which means good news, right? What makes the gospel good news? It meets our needs. Think about this, and we pull these passages of scripture out about once a year around Christmas time, and that's okay, but I think they really need to be dusted off and, and stood upon every day of our lives. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Luke chapter 2, verse 10 is not Jesus talking to you. It's not even like the prophets bringing the word of the Lord. It's basically an eyewitness account of the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Whether it's just men at work, shepherds in a field, you call it. And the angels are bringing the message from heaven, and as they're witnessed and as they're seen, this is what they say. This is how they describe the fulfillment of every one of God's promises, which that's who Jesus is, by the way. Their description of this, though men would take this and write novel upon novel upon novel. There would be manuals written. There would be encyclopedia series written. It would be so much content. And the angels of heaven sum up all the fulfillment of God's promises in one sentence. A single sentence. And here's what they say. <clears throat> Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. That's what they sum up the coming of the Messiah with. It's good news that there will be a great joy 
It'll be for all people. Well, I'm a person. That applies to me. The good news of Jesus Christ is what to me? Well, based on their announcement, a great joy. A great joy that I can rejoice in him and lean on him and have the fruit of him in and through my life at any moment of my life all the time. That it's not some earned achievement or, or credit or credential. It's not some visitation, but rather this is the habitation that God would promise. That would take the things that are unfruitful and unproductive and do away with them. And that would bring a permanent fruitfulness. My relationship with him is permanent. Not visitation, but it's habitation. This good news of a great joy is a wonderful thing to consider. And then I even ask myself this. I mean, what, what is joy? <clears throat> you turn to the dictionary for the definition of joy, and it's an emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. That's an interesting thing to consider. We've used this definition before, but I, I want to use it today because I think it's important to realize as we lean on Jesus, that's one of the things that's necessary for us to do is properly place him as king, as ruler, as leader, as authority in our life, but understand that there's a desire that's meant to be present there. It's not just done out of religious obligation or duty, but rather there has got to be a satisfaction that comes from that. Do I see Jesus as exceptionally good or satisfying? If I can't see Jesus as exceptionally good or satisfying, then I cannot have joy in him. If I see Jesus as an obligation or a duty, I don't rejoice in him. I don't have fellowship with him. I'm more of a slave to the idea of him. And that's not the relationship that God has extended. If you keep reading in the definition of joy, it gives another word that I think is important. It says a source or a cause of pleasure, delight, or something greatly valued or appreciated. Do I greatly value or appreciate Jesus? I think that's really the thing you have to understand when you read the words that Jesus would speak when he says things like, if you love me, you would keep my word. That sounds, we hear that through our ears, and our ears are hurt and wounded, rejected, and insecure oftentimes. I hear that and I think, what a snarky thing to say. Are you threatening them? What does that mean? Well, if you really love me, you'd do what I said. That's not it at all. What he's saying is if there's a love here, then they're going to be valued and appreciated, and the result will be you'll value and appreciate the direction I bring into your life. You'll rejoice in me. You'll lean on the things that I bring to you. And this is where I told you before we were going to find how to know what gives you joy. I mentioned before I wrote it down as it was kind of one of our three things we're going to find. When I wrote it down, I almost didn't write it down because I really don't want to talk about it. It's kind of convicting, honestly. But I think we do the hard stuff, and I think that's an important thing to consider. I want to evaluate what brings me joy, and I want to run it through this test. I, I, I know there are things that I want to bring me joy because they're the right things to bring me joy. They're the things that God has brought into my life. And, the, and if somebody were to say, does that bring you joy? By default, I would want to check off the box that says yes. But when I run it through this, I have to ask myself, is it really yes? Do you greatly appreciate that? Do you highly value that? Is that something you find exceptionally good or satisfying? Or is it something you do out of obligation? 
Now, these are great things to ask yourself. I mean, these are, are the things that you can do to search your heart and get things in order and get things right. It's not meant to be, you know, a shame festival. It's meant to be a, a cleaning of house to, to revisit priorities. It's real easy for things to get interrupted and clouded. This world is filled with distractions that would love to draw your eyes off of Jesus and fix them on something completely vain, something empty, something that will waste your time and your life. But the idea of joy, the idea of, of something being exceptionally satisfying, of, of something being valued and something being appreciated is really at the heart of the gospel. It's really at the heart of what makes a believer a believer. Let me show you a passage of scripture. I, I told you before we were going to find something. We were going to find, you know, how to know what gives you joy. We're going to find it right here in this passage. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Matthew 13, 44. Now, this is Jesus speaking, and he's talking about, you know, entering into the kingdom of God, which is becoming a Christian, right? I mean, it's, it's being transferred from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about here. And as Jesus is talking about this, he makes a comparison to the kingdom of God in, in an earthly example that we can wrap our minds around. And as he does that, he does it like this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. Okay, so the kingdom's not the field, right? It's the treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. Now we keep reading to see what he has to say. A man finds the treasure and then hides it again. And from joy over that treasure, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. That's what Jesus says. The treasure's in the field and he wants the treasure. He couldn't give a flip about the field. That just happens to be where the treasure's at. So don't let the field distract you at all. The reality is this guy is not after the dirt. He's after the treasure. And there's a motivation that's here that you could easily just move right past if you just read too, too quickly and, and too casually. There's a motivation that is in this person that causes them to do something. Can you find the motivation? He finds the treasure. It's in the field. He hides it. And from joy over it, he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. The motivation is joy. It's the joy that he has over that treasure that impels him to go and do this wild and crazy thing to sell everything. Can you imagine being married to this guy? Can you imagine being married to him? Yeah. I'm a little nutty like that. Hey, listen, I found something, honey. It's in this dirt patch over here that's not growing anything. Just a field, empty field. I, I got an idea, though. And I'm telling you, I'm pumped about this, babe. You're going to love it, okay? I mean, I'm, I can't get this silly grin off my face. I'm so excited. I want to take everything that we have, everything we've built, and I want to sell it all. And then I want to take that, and I want to give it for that patch of dirt over there. What? That's the power of joy. It will make you do nutty things. This guy is motivated by a force that is so strong it transcends his money. And where your money is, that's where your heart is. That's what the scripture says. Pretty interesting. 
Jesus is saying this really short message. I mean, look at that. It's like, what, a few sentences tops. I mean, you read this message, and it takes up like an inch on the page of your Bible. But there's so much here to think about. This guy is willing to liquidate everything that he's worked for. He's willing to take his life, put a price on it, and sell it all so that he can go buy that patch of dirt that has that treasure that he is madly in love with and filled with joy over. It's the joy that's the motivation. And let me tell you something. That's something you can take into your private life and your prayers. Father, I want joy in my life. I know that this world is filled with all kinds of things that promise happiness, but I want joy. I want a fire that burns in me that will cause me to do the nutty things that bring you honor and glory. And when everybody looks at me and says, you're a freak, I just want to smile at them and say, you know what? God's at work. And there's a plan behind this. I don't even have to see the whole plan. I can just feel it in my heart. A motivation to keep moving and to do joy. I want that. I want it for you. So this guy, he sees this field. He sees the treasure. He, he, the treasure he's drawn to and the, he can't get rid of the joy. Don't you know there's a time where he walked away and he, and he starts thinking, like, man, that's a pretty nice treasure. He just keeps thinking about it, just keep, can't stop looking back. And then before you know it, he's thinking, you know what? I, I got to have that. There's all of this going on in his mind and in his heart. And it's the joy that continues to motivate him in the direction to do something. What does he do? He sells everything he has. Let me tell you something that's the gospel. Your life is a series of of things and, and, and thoughts and feelings and emotions and desires. And God wants them all to be sold. And he's buying. Can't hold anything back. That's the reason why the scripture could say we're bought with a price. Right? Of course, that price is the blood of Jesus. And don't get me started on that because that's a whole other message. But the reality is... You and I are selling the things off that have no value in order to obtain that thing that fills us with joy, that has more value than anything else we could ever imagine. Now then, here's something that I would take into my prayer life after reading this, is God, I want to see that treasure. Open my eyes to see that treasure. I don't want to walk past that field and miss that treasure. I want to see the kingdom and value it. I want to see the things that have value and worth beyond this lifetime that aren't just going to expire or rust or be stolen away. I want to see the eternal and let my heart be filled with joy upon seeing it that I would sell it all to get it. Yeah. It's nice. And then much of the scripture begins to make sense then, you know, why Jesus would say the things he says, why he would pray the things that he prays. I want to show you that, I think that's really an amazing thing to be aware of. In fact, I, I told you it's one of the three things we're going to find, what Jesus wants you to have. Jesus prays for you in John chapter 17. I think he's prayed for you a lot. He is your intercessor. But this is a recorded prayer, which means people witnessed it. Jesus did not write this down. Those who were allowed to be with him wrote this down, which tells me a couple of things, and they're not really that important to know, but... That would mean that he prayed it out loud, right? That he didn't just huddle in a corner. Amen. But that he made this known. 
He released his words into the world, and they're still flying through the atmosphere. Everything that you read in John chapter 17 is still moving today. 2,000 years later. All of those words. Pretty amazing to think about. And as he would pray, he would be praying for you. And this is one of the things that he would pray in verse 13. He says, Father, now I come to you. In these things I speak in the world so that they, that's you and me, might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Man, think about that. Jesus is praying and he's saying, Father, I've come and I've preached to them. I've brought them your word. I speak to them. And the whole reason for preaching, the whole reason for speaking, the whole reason for carrying your word from the heavens into this earth and releasing it by giving my life is so that they can have my joy made full in themselves. I'll tell you something, if Jesus came to bring it, I want it. If he entered into this world in order for that to be the result, then that's the result that I want. Father, I want the joy of Jesus Christ fulfilled in me. And now it's more than just happiness. It's more than just like a euphoric sensation. But I see in the scripture that it's a motivation. It's a fire. It's a drive. It's what causes someone to go and do the nutty things for God that produce something that has value and not just waste their lives away being the same old drone that is down the street from them, keeping up with the Joneses, doing the same thing everybody else is doing, living the same wasted life. But Jesus, who would be the image of the exception, the apostle, the one who would come and do the will of the Father as an example for us. I mean, I think it's pretty nutty to be born into this world just so that you can die. I think it's pretty nutty to lay down your life for people who don't deserve it. I think all of that stuff is pretty nutty. But it was his joy to do it, and the scripture says that. That was his motivation. He was willing to give it all because of the joy that he has for you. I want that kind of drive in my life. Jesus says this again, and we're going to wrap up right here. In John 15, 11, he's speaking, and now... He's not praying to the Father, but rather he's speaking to the disciples. And anyone who's a believer is going to fall in that category. So you can take this as if he's standing right in front of you and speaking straight into your face. John 15, verse 11. Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and then your joy may be made full. Man, you've got to stop there. You've got to realize something that's being said here. It's just this sentence, but yet it is volumes of information. If I take that passage and I take that scripture and I begin to examine it, I can re reveal so many things that are needed to understand. First of all, he says that he's speaking these things. Well, these things are the words that he's preaching. I mean, he talks about fruitfulness and fellowship and all these wonderful things throughout John 15. He's not only re referring to John 15 by itself. He's talking about all of the words throughout the gospel that are recorded. But then this is the part that I want to catch and end on because I think this is important. And if we miss this, we'll probably miss the most powerful thing that's being spoken in this sentence. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. 
These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Tells me a couple of things. One, it tells me that he desires for my joy to be made full. That's a good thing to know about Jesus. It, it undoes any of the, the, the false perception that Jesus would be like the Roman false god Janus, that he'd have two faces. You make me happy and I'll bless you. You make me angry, I'm going to thump you. That's not Jesus. Not Jesus at all. But to understand that everything he's ever brought into my life, whether it is prosperity and blessing or whether it is a correction and discipline, he's brought it all for the same purpose, just one reason, just one motivation, because he wants joy to be in my life in its absolute form, based on this made full. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Here's the other thing that I take away from that, and I want to close with this. If Jesus needs to put his joy in me in order for my joy to be made full, that will tell me my joy will never be made full without him. No matter what I put into my life in this world, it's going to leave me empty. No matter what I pursue, any measure of joy that might be achieved is going to fall short. There's something wonderfully powerful that's being spoken here that we could catch and it could change our lives forever. And it's the reality that for my joy to be made full, it's going to require Jesus Christ. There's no other option. No plan B. Just plan A. And every one of us that desires that result, that peace that surpasses all understanding, that ability to hold on and hang in there when everyone else is freaking out, that fire and that drive and that motivation to do that nutty stuff that has value and has worth, even when the world can't see it. All of that joy, that is going to require Jesus. And any attempt to do it outside of him will fall short. It'll end in some lack or some want that would be defined as anxiety or depression or funk of some kind. Jesus. And I think that's what we can carry into our prayers when we're engaging one-on-one, -on -one, privately with God. Father, I know that my joy will never be made full without Jesus. I don't want to just understand these things academically. I want to respond to this. I want to do anything it takes to see to it that the joy of Jesus Christ is living and active in and through me so that my joy can be made full, so that I can have the motivation to do great things in your kingdom, and so that I can stand firm even when everybody else melts to the ground. That's what I want. Will you show me and teach me and lead me and guide me? Let it be in your word, written and spoken. Let your spirit lead me in every way. But bring me to that place where I might have the joy of Jesus Christ in me and be willing to sell it all to obtain what has value and worth. It's a pretty good way to live, don't you think? I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. I want to pray over us.
I want to pray, and the prayer is going to be uh, that God do something in our hearts and minds, that there be a desire and an awareness of the value of joy. I'm going to ask that he set us free from any deception that mistakes happiness for joy. Happiness is not joy. Happiness is a euphoric feeling that comes and goes. I could hand you a cupcake and you get happy. I can take it away and you're sad. But joy, when it is in your heart, cannot be snatched away. It is a motivation and a drive to do the things that are pleasing to God. I want to pray for those things. Now I want a cupcake. I messed up. <laughs> That's all I can think about now. There where you stand, you'd be in an attitude of receiving or, or agreement, however you choose. But the prayer is for us collectively. And there's no more powerful minister in the room than the Holy Ghost. And he's here to touch and work in your heart and your mind, have an effect on your life. It won't just be some temporary sensation, but a permanent transformation, changing us and molding us and shaping us into the men and women that we're called to be. Father, we bless your name. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've made the treasure of your kingdom available to us. Open our eyes to see it, to see its worth and its value. And let the fire of joy be kindled in our hearts. A motivation to go, to do, to, to perform all that's necessary to see to it that that treasure be obtained. Don't let there be anything held back. That we truly would be willing to sell it all to obtain that which has worth. Deliver us from any vanity that we wouldn't put worth on any earthly thing that's temporary and destined to fail and pass away. Let us value the things that have worth, the things that are eternal, the things that bring you honor and glory, the things that expand your kingdom and glorify your name. Teach us to rightly value those things that have worth. And let the joy of Jesus Christ enter into our hearts to make our own joy full. That the fullness of that joy would be a fire and a drive to do the things that are pleasing to you, to achieve your will and see it come to pass, no matter what the cost. Let us become the most fruitful, productive, the nuttiest, the most willing people to step out and do those things that you've called us to do, all for your glory. Let that take place in us. Nothing would hold us back. And let the world stand and marvel as they see your sons and daughters standing firm in the midst of hell and chaos. That we wouldn't be provoked into panic and anxiety. That we wouldn't bow down to fear. But that the joy of Jesus Christ would be perfected in us. And let its result be the fulfillment of our joy that we might be able to stand with our hearts and minds guarded by Jesus himself. And then let the gratitude and the thanksgiving flow freely. That it wouldn't be thrown up as some desperate attempt to cope with chaos, but that it would be the resulting praise and worship of your fulfilled promise of deliverance in our lives. Let joy rise up in us. And let us rejoice in Jesus have the fruit of him in our lives at all times. And we ask right here collectively, let that fruit be his joy in us, making our joy full, all for your glory. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name.
and all the saints declared, Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at champschurch.com.